This morning's passage comes from Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. It goes through verse 37. You can follow in your own bulletins or in your own Bible. Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Would you please be seated? And would you join me in prayer for the reading and preaching of God's Word? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this parable this morning from the words of Jesus, the mouth of Jesus. We pray as we look at this parable that You would make our minds clear. Make us to understand Your Word. Would You reveal to our hearts that which we need that has been given by Christ Jesus? Would You show us our own sin? Would You show us our own idolatry? Would You make us more like Your Son Jesus? Through Your Word, by the work of Your Spirit, we pray. In Your name, Amen. Well, the text this morning begins with this man who it says is a lawyer. And I thought it would be kind of fun this morning to begin with a lawyer joke. But then I googled lawyer jokes and I couldn't find any that were very clean and classy. And I thought better of it once I realized that there are a lot of lawyers in our congregation. I actually didn't realize how many lawyers we have. I don't know why we have so many lawyers at Mercy, but we do. And so I thought, not going to begin with a lawyer joke. That would be fun, but not a great idea. This morning, though, we find this man who is a lawyer. And he's not a civil lawyer or an economic or political lawyer like we might envision a lawyer to be today. He is a, an expert in the law of God. Okay? That's what it means to be a lawyer during this time. He's an expert in the law of God. He had 
committed himself to the study of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He had become well-rounded in his reading about the Word of God, specifically about the law of God. He was there to answer the questions of people who might wonder, what does the law say about this or that? He was there to apply the law to some of the modern-day scenarios that seemed a little ambiguous concerning the law of God. He, during this time, this day and age, was one of the foremost experts concerning that Mosaic law in the beginning of the Old Testament books of the Bible. So this morning, he comes to Jesus with a question. He actually has two questions. Now this morning, I want to frame our, our look at this passage with three questions that will help us to understand the text. But before we get there, let me briefly explain what's happening in this passage. Many of you know this story well. Many of you have read this at least a dozen times. But this morning, as we look at this passage, we find this lawyer, and the beginning of this passage says that he asks a question of Jesus, meaning to test him. Now, I think many people have made conclusions, probably wrong conclusions about this passage, that the the testing that's implied in verse 25 seems to insinuate that this man was against Jesus, that he was opposed to him, that he, like the Pharisees, was meaning to entrap Jesus. But that's not clear from the passage. As a matter of fact, I, I believe he's a genuine seeker. I think he's genuinely interested in the words of Christ. The word in verse 25 that's used for testing is a word that means to examine or to evaluate. And and so it says that the man meaning to evaluate Jesus, most people who come to faith in Christ do so through an evaluation of Christ and His words. So we can't make any conclusions here about His motivation from verse 25. As we continue reading about Him though, He does seem genuine. It says that He was meaning to justify Himself when when He asked that second question. And then later, as he's engaged with Jesus, Jesus asks him which of these three proved to be a neighbor, and he quickly answers him, the the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus exhorts him, go and do likewise. Jesus never exhorted any of his antagonists in this way. When the Pharisees came, he he rebuked them. He showed them their error, but here he exhorts this man in a very favorable way. I think the lawyer is genuinely interested in what Jesus will say about these issues. He's evaluating Christ and His words. And he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a very popular question in the New Testament. Seems like everybody wants to have that question answered, okay? Sometimes they ask it in different ways. Sometimes they say, "Uh, what must I do to have eternal life? Or what must I do to be saved? Or what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? But it's all the same question. It's getting at the problem of sin, the separation from God. What must I do to have this resolved? What must I do to have any eternal hope? And Jesus says to the lawyer, well, what does the law say? Now you can see how that question is kind of like uh, asking the expert the question of his own field. It's like saying to a scientist, what do you think about cells and atoms? Okay? And the lawyer is thinking, well, this is a great question. Of course I know what the law says. So he summarizes the law. Then he responds with another question. Okay, love your neighbors yourself. I get it, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And to that, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to begin with this first question, though. It's in your insert in your bulletins. And the first question is this. What is the greatest need of this man, the lawyer here? What is his greatest need? And I'll tell you why we have to ask that question. Many people have read 
the accounts in Scripture, specifically the interactions of Jesus with individuals, and they have taken the words of Jesus to an individual, and they have broadly applied them to their lives, okay? So, for instance, we have the rich young ruler to whom Jesus says, take everything you have, sell it, and give the proceeds to the poor. And people have wrongly concluded, what, what do we have to do to inherit eternal life? It's easy. We sell everything we have. We give it to the poor. A little bit of uh, philanthropic love will get us a long way, right? And they apply that broadly to all of life. The same error can be made with this passage here. You see, Jesus speaks to individuals and He gives individuals exactly what they need to hear to move them from their own uh, self-righteous idolatry to a place of understanding their need. And so He gives His advice to the lawyer this morning. And He moves him from being dependent upon the law to a place of understanding mercy and his need for mercy. So what is the great need of this man this morning? You see, I think as we begin looking at this passage, it's very easy to conclude exactly who this man is, okay? He seems to be uh, the quintessential lover of the law, maybe the firstborn child, who loves the rules and loves the law and finds his identity and satisfaction in following those rules and laws. After all, he's a lawyer. Okay? After all, he, he, when Jesus asks him, what does the law say? He gives this great answer. He gives the summary of the law. And in Matthew and Mark, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest command? Jesus gives the exact same answer, word for word, verbatim. Jesus couldn't have said it better Himself here in this passage. This man knows the law and He loves it. Again, when He asks that second question, it says that He wanting to justify Himself. Okay? Now, how many firstborn children are here? You can raise your hand. It's okay to raise your hand. Good, we got a lot of firstborns. Good. Okay, the stereotypical firstborn. I'm a firstborn and I'm a stereotypical firstborn child. When I hear the line, He wanting to justify Himself, I say, yeah, that's me. Okay? Everything about me wants to justify myself. I want to be right. I want to be found to be right. I want to be successful. I want to be accurate. I want to do what is expected of me, and I want to do it well. I want to achieve at a high level. That's the man that we find in this passage this morning. That's the lawyer. It seems to be his whole interaction with Jesus this morning, so he wanting to justify himself. You see, this man is not hard to diagnose. I feel like I'm looking in a mirror when I read about this man. He's the rule follower. You know, he didn't follow the law and construct all these great ways of following the law because he wanted to create a stumbling block for other people or because he wanted to make it harder to get into heaven. He genuinely thought that by works of the law he would be justified. And he wanted to craft his whole life around following the works of the law. And he was good at it. He was very good at it, at least I think from our reading of him this morning. So what was his great need? What was the need of the lawyer? Well, it's very simple. This man who believed that his whole life was justified by works of the law needed an understanding of the necessity of mercy. He needed to understand that not by works of the law would man be justified, but through acts of mercy would man be saved. And so Jesus, in one of the ways that only Jesus can do, understands this man's great need. And what does he do? He moves him from works of the law to an understanding of mercy. You see how he does that? 
He takes these two pillars of the law, the priest and the Levite, and he shows that by following the law, how they yet are not glorifying to God. It's kind of interesting how he does that. Then he takes the Samaritan who's like the opposite of the law, the Samaritan who is everything that is not according to the law of God, and he shows how the Samaritan is glorifying to God. It's absolutely amazing. Jesus juxtaposes the law and mercy. He shows the man his great need. He leads him through this. And at the end, the lawyer who would justify himself by works of the law says, yeah, I I see the one who is merciful. I see the one who has demonstrated mercy. So that's this man's great need. That's why Jesus speaks in this way. You might have wondered, when the man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You might have wondered, why didn't Jesus just say, you have to have faith? Just trust in me, you'll be saved, right? That seems like the easy answer. But Jesus leads this man through an understanding of the law, which would ultimately bring him to a place of understanding at, the, at least the beginnings of the necessity of mercy. How all of the law is pointed towards this mercy that would be necessary because no man can live by works of the law. No man would be justified. The second question I want to ask about the passage, and that's the man's great need. The second question, though, is what is this man's question, and why does he ask this question? And I'm really referring to the second question he asks. Okay, he says, what must I do to be justified? What must I do to inherit eternal life? But then the second question he asks is, who is my neighbor? It's an interesting question. I often read this passage and I think of all the questions that the lawyer might have asked, why does he ask this one? I mean, I would have asked like, okay, how do I love the Lord my God? Um, How do I love my neighbor as myself? What does it look like to do this with all my soul, my strength, all my will? But he asks a clarifying question, okay? Seems to be a tertiary question, a, a secondary question, a side question. He asks Jesus, okay, well, who is my neighbor? Why does he ask that question? Well, I think to understand the question, we have to understand the lawyer. To understand the lawyer, we have to understand the law, at least a little bit, okay? So you think about this. Jesus says to him, what does the law say? What's your understanding of it? And he says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, just so you know, you won't flip to the Old Testament and ever find those two commands written like that. They're not back-to-back found anywhere in the Old Testament. There's no place where Moses said, listen, here's the two summary of the law, two greatest commands, love the Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself. You won't find it written like that in the Old Testament. But by this time period, the time period when Jesus spoke and taught, by this time period, it had become well known among rabbis and teachers in the Talmud and Torah that the summary of the law was this, love the Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself. It is a summary of the Ten Commandments. It's a summary of the Levitical law. It's a summary of all they believed the law that God had given. Okay, an easy way to summarize it. Now, think about these two things that the, the lawyer says, love of God, love of neighbor. They do appear individually, separately in the Old Testament, okay? You've got Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 Uh, The Lord God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This was the Shema. That's what it's known in Hebrew as. It is the greatest command ever given to Israel. Love the Lord your God. Now, the second commandment that summarizes the second half of the law, to love your neighbor as yourself, it actually appears in Leviticus chapter 19. I, I think the lawyer would have known the passage by heart. He would have committed to memory. 
he would have known that there in Leviticus, God spoke about what it meant to love your neighbor. Now let me ask you, if you have your Bible, would you turn there? Leviticus 19. Because I believe understanding this command in the law will help us to understand exactly what is happening when the lawyer asks the question, well, who is my neighbor? So Leviticus 19, verses 16, 17, and 18, it's three verses. This is where we find the command to love your neighbor. But let me read it to you and then talk about why this is significant. Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 16. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now let me tell you why I think that's really interesting in light of the lawyer's question here this morning. You see, the the three, the triple emphasis here, verse 16, 17, and 18, it's written in this typical uh, Hebrew way of writing where there's a, a greater and greater clarification of what it means to love your neighbor, but you see in each verse there's a call and an answer, a call and an answer. And in each verse, Moses records what it looks like to love your neighbor, and then he exhorts them to love their neighbor in this way. And if you understand, if you read the passage, you actually see that Moses very clearly answers the question, who is your neighbor? Think about this. Verse 16. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Verse 16 says that your neighbor is your people. That's verse 16. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. What does verse 17 say about our neighbor? It's our brother. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, each verse in Leviticus 19, as Moses exhorts the people to love their neighbor, he exhorts them in a way that they would understand that their neighbor is their people, it's their brother, it's the sons of their people, it's their kinsmen, it's their family. And as Moses exhorts them to love of neighbor, it really provides an interesting framework for the Jewish understanding of who is your neighbor. See, in, in that way, The Levitical definition of neighbor is much more narrow than even the worldly view of neighbor today. The world says that a neighbor is the person who lives on the right and left of you or across the road from you. Uh, They're the person who lives in your development, maybe your housing development. But according to the Levitical law, your neighbor is not even that. The person living to the right of you could not be your neighbor. At least according to the understanding of the law that was popular during this day. And so as we read this, you see... We have to understand then the lawyer's question, he's asking a very narrow question and he expects a very narrow answer from Jesus, okay? The lawyer expects that Jesus is going to clarify for him who is really my family and who is not. Who is really my brother or my kinsman and who is not. The lawyer, and I, I said it earlier, I think he's genuine. I believe that the lawyer is here asking the question of Jesus with pen and paper, ready to write down, who does Jesus say my neighbor is so I can go and I can love them, ready to check the box, and he's waiting for Jesus to answer like, okay, is it my first cousins or my second cousins? Or does it go all the way to my third cousins? 
Is it the Jewish people who have married Gentiles? Or is it not? Is it the Jews who have married Gentiles and have had children and their children have married Jews? Or is it not? Is it the Jews in Jerusalem? Or is it the Jews scattered across the world? Is it the Jews who have stayed faithful to the law? Or is it those more liberal Jews, the progressive Jews? Who is my neighbor, Jesus? Tell me exactly who is my kinsman. Who is my brother? And then I will know exactly, Jesus, who I must love. Okay? So when Jesus answers with a parable, and He includes a Samaritan, a a half-blood, I was going to say Gentile, practically Gentile Samaritan, when Jesus goes there in this parable, you have to imagine that the lawyer's mind is being blown. And he's like, okay, I, I was not even expecting this. There's 10 things I expected from Jesus, but this is beyond even what I expected of Jesus. All right? Now, we're going to get to Jesus' parable in a second of the Good Samaritan, understanding exactly how Jesus answers this lawyer. But let me just ask you, are, are, we, are we like the lawyer trying to parse out the law to see how we can live to justify ourselves do we do that and i think sometimes we do okay we love the law we know that the law is good it's been given by god for a specific purpose but if we're not careful we easily begin to frame our lives around the law that we might be justified by this law right we do that i i've encountered many people that uh who call themselves christians but it's clear as they articulate what it means to be a christian that they're, they actually are not having faith in Jesus Christ. They're actually living according to some works-based justification of the law, which they think justifies them before God. Now, thankfully, it doesn't happen often in this church. I'm thankful that this church very uh, uh, succinctly and clearly understands the doctrines of grace. I'm very thankful for that. But there are many I come into contact with who have been in church for years who are justifying themselves by the, work, uh, by the works of the law, or at least think they're justifying themselves. I, I might have, you might have heard this story before. If you have, you can tune out for the next 30 seconds or a minute. Um, I, uh, many years ago, was at this lunch uh, with my family, my extended family. We're at this picnic lunch, and, um, and this woman came up to me, and she began talking to me, and she was interested in a conversation with me because she said, you're a Presbyterian pastor, right? And I said, yeah, I am. And she said, well, I'm a Presbyterian elder. I would love to talk to you uh, more about our churches. And so we started this conversation. We, had, we didn't have much in common. We, we began to figure out our differences a little bit. But at one point, I, I, I just asked her this genuine question. I said, can you tell me, what do you believe biblically qualifies you to be an elder in the church of God? And I, I'll never forget the answer she gave. She said, well, it's very easy. It's very simple. I'm, I've been a member of this church my whole life. I tithe every week and I do good to other people. What, what else is there? That's what she said to me. What else is there? And I was thinking in my mind, what else is there? That you will not justify yourself by works of the law. Your membership, your tithing, your good works to people, those are great, but they will not justify you. No man will be justified by works of the law. So we see this morning the lawyer wanting to justify himself by works of the law. Jesus moves him to a greater understanding of mercy. Now I want to ask this last question. The question is this, what's the meaning of Jesus' parable? What's the meaning of Jesus' parable this morning? He shares this parable of the Good Samaritan, but what's the purpose? Why does he share it, and what is he trying to say, and not only to the lawyer, but to us? 
to this parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, many of you know the parable. Beginning in verse 30, Jesus says there was a man who was making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't know anything about the man. I assume he's Jewish. I think that makes sense in the story. He's making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho along a road that was notoriously a dangerous road. There was lots of uh, uh, small little dark places on this road. Uh, There was uh, people, thieves along this road who would take advantage of travelers. And so the story makes sense. And as this man is traveling along the road, he's uh, overtaken by these thieves. They beat him. They take his clothes, everything he has. They leave him to die along the road. Well, along comes a priest. And the passage seems to indicate that not only does the priest not help the man, but he kind of goes all the way on the other side of the road to get as far as he can away from the man who's lying on the road. He goes all the way out around him and he keeps on going. Along comes a Levite. And the Levite does the same thing. The Levite not only doesn't help the man, he goes all the way out around him as far as he can get away from this man to not help him. Okay? Now, many commentators have argued over what exactly is happening with the priest and the Levite here. I think there's good information or good reason to believe that these men might very well be on their way to Jerusalem to serve in the temple, okay? Now, I know it's possible that they're not, but it seems likely given a few things. First of all, not only that there are priests and Levite on the road to Jerusalem, but they're also going way out around this man which would seem to indicate that if they're going to serve in the temple, they don't want to be found unclean if they come into contact with a dead body, okay? Uh, So they're going out around this man, but I also think it's very possible, maybe even likely, that they're going to serve in the temple because this message above all other messages would have resonated with the lawyer, right? The lawyer who wants to follow the law at all costs would have said, yeah, of course they went around him. They can't be unclean when they go to the temple, They had to check that box. They had to keep going that way, okay? And then Jesus says, along came this Samaritan. Along came this Samaritan. I mentioned earlier the Samaritans were long considered enemies. I don't know, might be too strong of a word, but the the relationship is definitely not good between the Jews and the Samaritans. The the Samaritans were considered to be half-blood Jewish, Gentile mix. They were They had this long history with Israel, not a good history. They lived right there, just north of Judea, um, and they would interact at various times, as is evidenced by Jesus' various interactions with the Samaritans, but they were not well-liked. They were generally uh, thought of to be outside of the family of God, to be disobedient to the law. And so here's the Samaritan, and you know the story. The Samaritan comes along, and he goes above and beyond. He pours out himself. He invests his money, his resources, his energy, all of his time. He does everything that he can to make sure that the man is taken care of, that he's restored to health and to life. And I think if we're to understand the meaning of this parable, we really have to look at verse 36. Okay, verse 36 in chapter 10, as Jesus is sharing this parable, he says this at the end of the parable. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And I have to say, if you read the King James Version or the NIV, I think they do a poor job of of communicating this verse here. The the King James and the NIV, they say, which of these men was a neighbor uh, to the man along the road? The ESV does a little bit better, but still not the best, I think. The ESV says, which man proved to be a neighbor to the man along the road? But let me tell you, it's The Greek word here is the word gnosko. And if you know any Greek, you know the word gnosko. It's the most prevalent verb in the New Testament, gnosko. 
And, and in this voice and this tense, it literally means to become. To become. The definition, when you look it up, it says it, it, it connotates or it communicates a change. A change in substance, a change in location, a change in identity. It, it, it communicates some sort of change. And so, rightly translated, I think the most wooden, accurate translation would be this. Which of these three men became a neighbor to the man along the road? Which of these three men was changed into a neighbor for the man along the road? You see, that begins to communicate the thrust of the parable that Jesus shares here. Which man transformed into a neighbor of this man along the road? Now let me tell you, I think that the lawyer who had committed the law to memory, who when Jesus spoke about love of neighbor was going all, all the way back to Leviticus 19, the lawyer likely heard Jesus asking this question, which man among these three was a kinsman to the man along the road? Which man among these three became a brother to the man along the road? Which man among these three became family to the guy who was along the road? That's an interesting question. Not only because it's a Samaritan, and that was a priest and a Levite that went around him, okay? But it's an interesting question in light of everything we know from the Levitical law, the exhortation of who's family and who's not family, what it means to love your neighbor and not love your neighbor. Jesus says to him, which man became family to the man along the road? And I think it begs another question. How in this parable... How does the Samaritan become his family? How does the Samaritan, who was the only guy who was not his family, not his blood, not from Israel, how does he become family to the Jewish man lying almost dead along the road? And you see, it's not just good enough to say, well, the law says one thing, but Jesus says another, so it must be what Jesus says, okay? Jesus is, is not undoing the law. Okay? He's not saying, you know, law says this, but I, law's wrong, I'm right. Jesus is working to clarify the law. He's working to fulfill the law. He's showing us more of the law, but he's showing us of how it's pointing us to him. You see, in this passage, Jesus is broadening our understanding of who is family, who is kinsman, who is brother, who is our people. And it's not like, uh, like a really... Uh, uh, nice, fluffy understanding. Of, oh, that's so nice. We're all family. That's great, Jesus. I love that. It, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing in this passage is he's showing that there is a familial relationship between you and all you come into contact with because you are sons and daughters of Adam. And the familial identity that you have in common, the unmistakable quality that you all have is that you've all fallen into sin. That as Adam fell into sin, all of humanity therefore was ushered into sin. Now you share this common identity. You are all born into sin, and through that you are all sons and daughters of Adam. You all have that in common. Jesus is telling a story of a Samaritan who recognized that quality. See, what's so special about the Samaritan? What makes him different than the priest and the Levite? The Samaritan was doing something very simple. He saw the man along the road and he said, oh, you're like me. That's it. You're like me. The man broken and beaten, left to die, lying along the road. He says, you're like me. 
We're both broken. We've both been left. We both have no hope apart from the mercy of God. He recognizes that in this man, and and as he moves to act, he seamlessly does it in a very easy way. He moves to act for the sake of this man, and Jesus says, what happened? He became his neighbor. He became family to this man. He became kinsman. He became brother to this man. The thrust of the parable is very simple. Jesus will continue to speak about this in his life and his ministry as he speaks about the kingdom of God. He speaks about a people, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, who are all without hope apart from the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he exhorts his followers as they look around to simply see people who are sufferers, people who are born in sin, people who are broken, people who are in need of saving. And as they recognize that common quality in all men and women, that they would move towards them as people who have received mercy and recognize the value of that mercy. Brothers and sisters, it's a very simple encouragement this morning. When you look around you, what do you see? When you look around you and you see the people around you, not only in this church, but in this community and this world, what do you see? Do you see people who are worse off than you and who are to be pitied? who you feel very poorly for because, man, they don't, they don't got it together like I do. You see people who have more than you and you're jealous of them and you think, oh, if only I was like them, wouldn't it be great if I just had what they had? Do you see people around you who say, you know what, they're not in my purview. They're not my people, okay? I got other people. They're my people and I care about them, but they're not my people. So Jesus is exhorting not only the Lord, but exhorting us. As, as we consider this parable, he's exhorting us to look around us and see men, women, and children who are exactly like us. Share this common identity. They're, they're born in Adam. They're born in sin. And they desperately need the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They desperately need the gospel. Let us move towards them with mercy and grace. Knowing that they are born as sons and daughters of, the, of Adam, but they must be born again as sons and daughters of the second Adam that they would receive mercy and grace. So very simple encouragement to you this morning. Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is anybody who has need. Your neighbor is anyone in the world you come into contact with. Your, your neighbor is anyone who needs mercy and grace. Your neighbor is anyone who is seeking to be justified by works of the law but will not be justified because no flesh will be justified. Your neighbors, anyone you come into contact with, anyone who needs mercy. Your neighbor is anyone who is broken. Your neighbor is anyone who is in need. In desperate need, as the gospel reveals, we all have desperate need. And so as Christ loved us, we are called then to go forward. Go and do likewise. Love your neighbors yourself, because those who have received love and received mercy know the great value of that love and mercy. And they desire to share it with those around them who also need that love and mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your son, Christ Jesus. And we know, Lord God, that this parable and this story is meant to point us forward to the cross. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would show us the ways in which we are seeking to justify our own selves through works of the law. 
how we think if we live better, we will be more acceptable to you. May we know, Father, may we know that we will never be more acceptable to you than we are at this moment by the blood of Christ Jesus. Whether we fail to live according to the works of the law, whether we live almost perfectly according to the works of the law, we will never be more acceptable to you than we are right now. So as we are in Christ Jesus, having the penalty of sin paid for, having been reconciled to the Father through the blood of Christ, may we go forward into the world and may we see others who desperately need you as well. May we recognize that we, like the man along the road, are broken and left to die apart from your mercy. And may we go forward with thankfulness and gratitude in our hearts, loving our neighbors ourselves, not as a means of justifying ourselves, but as a means of living as those who have received mercy and grace. Out of the gratitude of our hearts, may it be true. For your glory, Lord God, through our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, we ask all of this. Amen.